And so they thought they were free. And just as those who think they are whole are not in need of a physician, even so those who think they are free will not see themselves in need of liberation. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the book of Romans, and as we pick up today in chapter 2, verse 17, Pastor Brogy, in a message entitled, The Living Dead, examines the life of the Jews who felt they were secure in their salvation simply because they were God's chosen people who, through Moses, had been given the law. Take the word of God with you this morning and turn to the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. We're working our way through the book of Romans, and as you can see here on your note-taking outline this morning, I want to speak on the subject of the living dead. Some years ago, there was an article that the Associated Press picked up out of the Birmingham newspaper that caught the attention of a lot of people, myself included. The article was entitled, entitled, Worker Dead at Desk for Five Days. Let me read a portion of the article. Executives are trying to work out why no one noticed that one of their employees had been sitting dead at his desk for five days before anyone asked if he was feeling okay. George Turkelbaum, 51, who has been employed as a proofreader at a New York firm for 30 years, had an apparent heart attack in the open plan office he shared with 23 other employees. He quietly passed away on Monday, but nobody noticed until Saturday morning when an office cleaner asked him why he was working on the weekend. George's boss, Elliot Wachowski, said, George has always been the first guy in each morning and the last to leave each night, so no one found it unusual that he was in the same position all that time and didn't say anything. He was always absorbed in his work and kept much to himself. A post-mortem examination revealed that he had been dead for five days after suffering a coronary. And the article ended with a rather tongue-in-cheek statement, you may want to give your co-workers a nudge every once in a while. <laughs> so here was a faithful employee sitting at his desk, clothed in his white shirt and tie, surrounded by all his papers and books, looking straight ahead, looking very much alive, but in actuality being very much dead. Well, I believe our text this morning may nudge some of us to see whether we are alive or dead. It will equip others to help us to be discerning in that process. Paul spoke to Timothy in 2 Timothy or 1 Timothy 5 of a certain kind of widow who was dead while alive. Jesus spoke of such people. Listen to these words. He said to the Pharisees, you are whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Understand, during the Passover, each year when thousands, tens of thousands of pilgrims would come from Palestine and all the surrounding countries to celebrate the Passover, they would whitewash all the tombs. It was a kind of clean up Jerusalem. Not so much to make the city look so great, but to make it ceremonially clean. Because in the book of Mo Numbers, Moses said that if anyone came in contact with a dead body, they were ceremonially unclean and therefore would not be able to celebrate the Passover. Well, the Jews had expanded that to say not just touching 
a literal dead body, but even stepping on the grave. And so that each pilgrim would see the grave, they whitewashed all the tombs so they would stand out. So when Jesus calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, in essence, he's saying, listen, you stand out to draw attention to yourselves. You try to make yourself look good and clean, but the truth is, is that you don't represent life, you represent death. And people who follow you, people who brush up against your lifestyle, they're defiled by it. And so he went on to say in the next verse, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? The Lord Jesus described not just religious people as dead. In the Revelation, he described one church as being the same way. Listen to the words that he said in Revelation 3.1. I know your deeds. You have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. They looked alive, but in fact, they were very much dead. And religion hasn't changed a whole lot in some 2,000 years. Today, religion is in the business of whitewashing. It changes nothing on the inside, only on the outside. And that can be true not just of entire congregations, as, as in Revelation 3, but as individuals as well. And so in the final judgment, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. There are individuals who have been cleaned up a little bit on the outside. They've had a boost from below, but they've not had a birth from above. And unless you are born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Now, Paul spoke of the same reality, and he said it would be acutely true when we come to the end of the age, the last of the last days. He said to Timothy, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Because he said, men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. And then he said, holding a form of godliness, but denying its power thereof. People who on the outside seem cleaned up, but on the inside are like dead men's bones. It's very possible to claim to be a believer, to serve in Christ's name, to even preach in his name, and to be lost to be unregenerate, to be spiritually deceived, and in the end to hear the words, I never knew you. My friend, that's Christianity in America. Like never before we are making inroads through seminars, through television, through radio, through best-selling book on, books on the New York Times best-selling list. But when Gallup assessed the situation, he said so clearly, never before in the history of America has the church made so many inroads while at the same time making so little difference. How is it that statistically we can be doing so much, and yet when you look at the church, statistically we are not that much different from the adultery of this age, from the divorce of this age, from the misuse of drugs of this age, and so many other things, sinful obsessions, that some of, quote-unquote, God's people are engaged in. How is it that for centuries, a church 
or churches are calling the world to repent. Now we're living in a day where the church needs to repent. Well, our passage reminds us that activity is no substitute for a truly transformed life. Romans 2, I hope you found it by now. We want to begin in verse 17 where we left off last week. He said, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You therefore who teach another, do you teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Now, for the benefit of those who are here for the first time and for the rest of us who are really trying to master the book of Romans because we know that it can really mature us and change us. Let me review where we've been and bring us into the immediate context this morning. Three months ago today, we had our first session in the book of Romans. And if you remember, I gave you a chart that divides the book up. If you read the book over and over and over again, you'll see very clearly there are three major divisions to the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through 8 deal with the subject of God's righteousness revealed. The subject of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God as seen in the gospel. And so in chapters 1 through 8, he speaks to God's righteousness. He unfolds it. He reveals it for us. It comprises really the doctrinal section of the book of Romans. When you come to chapters 9 through 11, you come to the second section where it deals with God's righteousness vindicated. Most of you know that chapter 8 ends with that magnificent promise that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And then chapter 9 opens with the sad description of Israel's rebellion and unbelief. Well, if nothing can separate us from the love of God, and if, as the Old Testament teaches, God loved Israel with an everlasting love, and if God made some promises to Israel that He said He is going to keep no matter what, then how do you deal with the fact that it appears that God has abandoned Israel? And so in those three chapters, God's righteousness is vindicated. God shows that it's not he that abandoned Israel, but Israel abandoned him. And so in 9, he shows Israel's election, in 10, their rejection, and in 11, their future coming restoration. In spite of their rejection, God will keep his promises And his righteous word will be vindicated as true. When you come to chapter 12 and verse 1, there's a structural word, therefore, that signals you you're coming to a new section. And so Paul now applies chapters 1 through 11. And so we are calling this third section God's righteousness applied. In one word, it is the practical section. So section one is doctrinal, God's righteousness revealed. Section two is national, God's righteousness vindicated. Section three is practical, God's righteousness applied. Now we noted in that introductory time together that each section in turn divides into three sections. And so here in the first section, we see there are three major divisions. In 118 to 320, he deals with the doctrine of condemnation. 
He will point out the fact that all men are guilty without excuse. Then, beginning in 321 through the end of chapter 5, he will deal with the doctrine of justification. How is it that God, through Christ, can put a person into a right relationship with himself? And then, finally, in chapters 6 through 8, he will deal with the doctrine of sanctification. That process whereby God makes us in experience more like Jesus Christ. And he will demonstrate that God saves us not simply from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. So we're in this section that's dealing with the condemnation of man. Paul knows that before you can get a man saved, you must get him lost. And he must see that the reason he needs Christ is because his sin, like your sin and my sin, is an absolute offense to a holy God. That God's justice and holiness burns with a holy, righteous anger. And so having introduced the gospel in 1, 1 to 17, beginning in 1, 18, all the way through 3, 20, he demonstrates the need for the gospel. Before Paul can give us the good news, he needs to give us the bad news. And so having introduced the gospel, he now shows the universal need for the gospel. And to show that need, as we've noted, like a prosecuting attorney, he arraigns every possible segment of society that you can think of. And with each group, his procedure is the same. He brings an accusation, he marshals the evidence against them, and he proves that they are inexcusably guilty before God. And his theme with each group is the same, that no one can plead innocence before God because no one can plead ignorance about God. And so with the first group, what we're calling the pagan, hardcore, idolater, the Gentile, which would be a synonym for that term in the New Testament, is a group of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They have truth because God's eternal attributes, his divine power and eternal nature are clearly seen to the things that he has made and so that they are without excuse. The reason they live like pagans is not because they lack information, but because they suppress the information they do have. So he will conclude they are without excuse. No possible defense. In Romans 1 really is a picture of the judgment of God that falls on an individual or on a society that rejects God. And America, at a furious pace, is becoming more and more like Romans chapter 1. Then, if you remember, beginning in Romans chapter 2 and verse 1, all the way through verse 16, the first half, he deals with the self-righteous moral man. The man who is moral, but nonetheless lost. And Paul's argument, again, is the same, in that he makes a moral judgment against other people, and when he makes that moral judgment, he is claiming to understand and have God's knowledge. How does he have it? God wrote it into his heart. His conscience either accuses him or defends him. And so in judging other people and saying, this is bad in your life, without, a, without the need to look at his own heart, he is really condemning himself. And so Paul will say they have no escape because they have no excuse. Now we come to a third group beginning here in verse 17. And Paul's argument will be again the same. They have knowledge and that knowledge makes them responsible such that they are equally guilty. He's not simply interested in people who are religious, but people who have an inward reality. Not simply people who have a profession about God, but people who literally possess the Lord. And so 
he deals with these Jewish people who would think, we're God's chosen covenant people. We are the people that God chose to make his name after. And so he will move from that group that he's been calling, O man, to verse 17, where he will say, if you bear the name Jew. Certainly, the Jewish people have been the hidden target in the first 16 verses, but now he directly addresses this group of people. Now, if you want to jot down a few notes for further reflection this week, first, I want us this morning to consider why the Jews would have felt safe before God. Why would the Jews feel safe before God? Well, since they had been the chosen people out of all the nations of the world, they had a confidence that was unmatched. I mean, if anybody could feel secure, the Jewish people felt like they could be. Now remember, Paul was a Pharisee before his conversion. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a leader amongst the Pharisees, a member of the Sanhedrin. And so Paul understood the way these people thought. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he highlights eight ways in which a faithful Jew thought he would be eternally secure. And after he highlights those areas in which they place their confidence, he pulls the rug out from under their feet and shows them that they are guilty. Now, there are eight verbs in the original. Some of the nouns there look like verbs, but there's only eight verbs in the original. And those eight verbs reflect eight reasons why a Jewish person felt safe and everything was okay. Reason number one for their false confidence. They felt safe because of their special name. They felt safe because of their special name. Again, verse 17 begins with the words, but if you bear the name Jew. Now, in that day, the Jewish person was the most religious person alive. It's certainly not true in our day, but it was true in that day. Today, it might be the fervent Catholic, maybe the zealous Muslim, maybe the passionate evangelical. But Paul wants to make it very clear that a profession of religion, even if it is biblically based, is not enough to make you right before God unless that somehow has transformed your life. So first, he says, you bear the name Jew, and they were proud of that name. Now, we know from biblical history, the first time uh, they're called Jews is in 2 Kings 16. And of course, the word Jew comes from the word Judeans, which is a short form of the word Judah. That means one who is praised. The Jewish people were praised. They were blessed. They were set apart by God as a unique people. But in the time of Christ, they had turned that great privilege into pride. And so the rabbis of the day taught, out of all the nations of the world, God loves Israel. And because he loves us, he will judge us by a different standard than he will judge the Gentiles. Every Jew, just like Muslims think this way, they think every Muslim will have a part in the coming kingdom. They argued in that day, there's a number of rabbinical writings that have been preserved. They said Abraham was at the gates of heaven and they would allow every Jew to come in, even wicked Israelites. Now, if you remember, the Lord dealt with that flagrant attitude in John chapter 8. Jesus spoke of some Jews who claimed to believe. They were in reality unbelieving believers. And in John 8, he said, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. 
The word abide or continue in some of our texts is the Greek word meno. It means to remain, to keep going. It implies obedience. And Jesus said a true convert, someone who has had a second birth, who has been born twice, is not content with a superficial attachment to his word. A true convert wants to know the word of God and obey the word of God. Continuing in the truth, abiding in the truth, is a mark of a true disciple. Every time the word disciple is used in the New Testament, it's not always used of a genuine Christian. Context determines meaning. And Jesus in John 8 speaks of deeds as not being the basis of salvation, but a manifestation of true legitimate salvation. The same thing he said in Matthew 7 when he will declare you will know them by their fruit. It's not enough to claim to possess Christ if he hasn't changed your life. And so he says, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Now the Lord is not speaking of physical freedom or political freedom, but as the context bears out, he's speaking of spiritual freedom. Now, the Bible teaches that sinners are enslaved on three levels. To the world, that is the world system around us, to the flesh, that sinful nature within, and the devil, the one who's energizing the world system and the one who tempts and shoots fiery darts at our sinful nature. And so these half-believed people who said that they were right with God, Jesus pulls back the veneer and shows how lost they were. And he shows that it is very possible in that chapter to hold something intellectually without ever having willfully embraced it. Where you can know the truth here, but you don't know it here. You know it in your mind, but you have not received it in your heart. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, Paul will argue in the 10th chapter. And so there are some people who have missed salvation by 18 inches. They answered Jesus, we're Abraham's offspring and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we shall become free? What do you mean free? We've always been free. Now, they don't deny that they've been enslaved to different people. They're not speaking in terms of physical freedom or political freedom. They're speaking here about spiritual freedom. And they're saying because we're Abraham's offspring, because we are descendants of him, we are right with God. They had lived first under servitude before the Egyptians, then the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Greeks. And in Jesus' day, they were under the boot of Rome. It's what the prophet Daniel spoke of as the time of the Gentiles. And so the context is not dealing with physical, political freedom, but spiritual freedom. And they said, listen, we're identified with Abraham. We're direct descendants of him. We come out of his loins. You know, the one God calls the friend of God, the father of the faithful. And so they thought they were free. And just as those who think they are whole are not in need of a physician, even so those who think they are free will not see themselves in need of liberation. And until you see that you are spiritually enslaved, will you come to Christ for true freedom? Listen, I meet people every week, virtually every week, sometimes several times in a week, who on the outside, they know all the jargon, but on the inside, they are enslaved. And some who say, well, I've been baptized. 
I've joined a particular church. I've walked an aisle. I've prayed a prayer. I'm, I'm a member of Community Bible Church. God and I, we've got an understanding. God and I, you know, we're okay with one another. And they will tell me sometimes, look, I, I've been saved. And they associate salvation with some act. I've been saved, and God knows I'm saved, and I may get to heaven, and I may not have much, but God knows that you're saved by grace, and works really don't matter. That's called antinomianism. It was a heresy that was condemned in the early centuries by the church. Nomos is the Greek word for law, that you're saved by grace, and works don't matter. Well, listen, they're right on one hand. You are saved by grace, totally by grace, apart from works. But works do matter in the sense that they are the proof, the evidence, the fruit of genuine conversion. I cannot imagine anyone meeting God in heaven, thinking that they are going to heaven. And they say, look, Lord, we did all these external things in your name. And the Lord will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Listen, millions today in America bear the name Christian. I mean, it certainly sounds better than agnostic or atheist or pagan or unbeliever. Sure, I'm a Christian. And Paul is dealing with people who bear the name Jew. We're Jewish. We're Abraham's offspring. We're the chosen people. We're okay, Paul. And Paul's going to argue with them. You cannot skip the judgment of God and think that just because you bear the name Jew, you're fine. So first, they felt they were safe because of their special name. Secondly, they felt safe because of their possession of the law. Because of their possession of the law. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law, the Jew not only had the advantage of the Hebrew birth, they had the advantage of possessing the Hebrew Bible. They relied upon the law. They rested, literally, the Greek means. They leaned upon, they depended upon the law that God had given to them at Mount Sinai. That same word is used, epanapaomai, in the book of Micah, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is what most Jews read in the first century because they had lost their ability to read Hebrew. They read the Septuagint. God uses that word. Her leaders pronounced judgment for a bribe, wrote Micah. Her priests instruct for a price, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord, same word. Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. And in spite of their sin, they were saying, in essence, nothing can happen to us. We lean on the Lord, we're fine. Even so, these Jews in Paul's day took great pride in the fact that they had been given the law, that God had given to them the law and the prophets. It's one thing to lean on the law if you abide by the law and are subject to it. It's another thing entirely to presume upon the law. And Monday, we'll look more closely at this error. For a copy of today's program from our study of Romans entitled The Walking Dead, call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and request program ROM9. Be sure also to check out our Search the Scriptures app, available through the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. On the app, you can listen to all of Dr. Brogy's messages, plus access archives of his radio call-in program, The Bible Line. Speaking of which, if you have a question about the Bible or living the Christian life, 
You can submit it online at searchthescriptures.org and then listen Tuesday mornings at 11 Eastern on the website for an answer. You can also call in during that time and go live if you prefer and have your question answered right then. Just call 843-525-1859 Tuesdays 11 Eastern to go live or any other time and dictate your question. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our look at The Walking Dead. Join us then as we search the scriptures.